This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I, I'm a bit like a parent. You're not supposed to have favorites amongst your guests, but even as a parent, you can't help it. There is sort of favorites, and it might vary sometimes, but we've got a favorite coming up. We've got, and a crowd favorite, Kathy Jameson <laughs> emails me late at night like she does. Oh, I've got something to say. And I just grab her because we love Kathy Jameson. Kathy Jameson, good morning. Good morning. You don't have to do much to get on my show, do you? <laughs> no, you don't play hard to get. No. I'm a pushover when it comes to you. You just say, oh, I've got something to say, and I put you on 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, we to start. Um, I've, I've had quite a lot of sort of back and forth um, Official Information Act uh, requests and responses. Maybe I should give a bit of a background. Yeah, sure. So Kathy Jameson is actually consulted from around the world by people because she's focused on the vaccine and in particular the swapping of batches and composition and data. This is her thing. And she's extraordinary at it. And she's extraordinary at ferreting out information from here and overseas. And you may recall one of the astonishing things that Kathy did well, she discovered that there were three and a half thousand New Zealanders who had recorded adverse events here in New Zealand, but had been picked up by Pfizer and published on their web page, I guess, or published by Pfizer in the United States, which had more information. And Kathy was able to correlate two sets of data and draw an alarming picture. So here we are back with Kathy, who's vaccine adverse event lady, very good with data, extremely good at fishing out information. Oh my goodness, I'm sure the Ministry of Health technocrats have a bad day when an OIA comes in from Kathy Jameson. Well, here we go, <laughs> Kathy, tell us about it. It sort of feels like a little bit like I've become a serial pest for them. But, I mean, I don't mean to be. I asked some what I thought was fairly reasonable questions. And the reason that it's sort of become this complex back and forth interchange is that they just weren't answered. Um, so there's... Uh, there's a couple of things. I mean, I don't. I actually don't. People think I work with batch numbers, but I, I actually don't. Um, it's primarily adverse event data, and and there's not a lot of matching up in New Zealand between the adverse event data and the batch numbers. A little, the odd one, depending on whether the reporter reported it, but there's not a lot of information there. But my my interest in the batch numbers came about because I noticed that there was this uh, regulatory change on on the MedSafe website, and it looked like there was sort of another product being regulated, another type of adult COVID vaccine being regulated for. So I asked the question, 
has there been a composition change? And if there has, can you please give me the batch numbers by product composition category? Well, Straightforward, I, right? Straightforward. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I asked that, uh, I can't remember now, but it was before, it was long before I was with you last and we haven't spoken for a couple of months and I'm still waiting for an answer on that. So the last the last piece of correspondence I had, um, I mean, Chris James said uh, that they weren't going to give me any batch um, composition information, and I said, "Well, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to know what's in it. I just want to know has it changed, and if so, sort them." the batch numbers into the categories of the different types. So, and I had some supporting arguments from the ombudsman to sort of go back to him with. So he then passed it on to the Ministry of Health, who had their 20 days. And then after the 20 days, they wrote to me and they said they needed a further 20 days um, because the consultations and volume of information were such that a proper response couldn't reasonably be made in the time limit. So that was the end of October. So I'm still sort of waiting till the end of November to get that answer. But what was interesting was in the Herald on Monday, there was an article um, and it was around the, the, the millions of vaccine doses that have been wasted because there's been OIA action by other people and they've established that we have purchased 18 million doses, but 6 million doses have expired and been disposed of. So that's one in three. Yeah. Um, well, it's, you know, that's that's a serious issue. I mean, I, I prefer they were disposed of than go into arms. <laughs> of course. Uh, however, um, the fact, that as a depending, you know, regardless of what you think of COVID vaccines, the fact that we we purchased 18 million and only there was only demand, you know, even with the coercion that came with vaccine passes and workplace mandates, there was only demand for 12 million. And I mean, who couldn't have foreseen that? We've got five million people in the country. Our initial uh, our initial uh, provisional consent was only for those over 16 and we had advanced purchase agreements for 18 million. Uh, the numbers don't add up and, and there was no talk of boosters and so it was only a, a, a two-dose primary course so why they ever did advance purchase agreements for 18 million? So these these deliveries kept relentlessly happening because we had agreed to purchase them regardless of whether people were turning up to have doses or not. But anyway, that's beside the point. But it is extraordinary, isn't it, that um, you'd mis miscalculate. You know how many people are in the category to get the jab that you would miscalculate and they had a good uptake right given the relentless propaganda and the mandates mm. that they still 
got it wrong by 30%. I mean, they're a third out, right? So where were these extra 6 million? Who, who's, who and what was, I mean, a, a, a good question would be, how many did they expect everyone to be taking when they made this order? Not two, right? Well, the numbers say not. 18 million, and they dumped 6 million. And, I mean, we, I think people are sort of um, saying, like the chatter is that they were $35 a dose, but we don't know that for sure. But then you've got to add on to that the cost of disposal because, yeah. you know, they're not just pouring this thing down. Yeah, the thing. down the toilet, no. No. Um, so there's some fairly significant cost of disposal per dose, one would imagine, and there's the cost of we we had to bring it here, the logistic cost of bringing it here and then distributing it, distributing it around the country and, you know, the, the pro rata, the cost of having the vaccine centres open and the, and the vaccinators there when there was no demand, falling demand, and then they... Presumably what they had distributed that didn't get used had to be taken back to some sort of central point for disposal. So, you know, that's a lot of money per dose multiplied by six million. Mm. And none of these questions get asked except by you <laughs> and a few others. Oh, but you know, like yeah, the journalists, the journalists, you read the story and these questions are just jumping out at you. Mm. But anyway, so in this in this story published, what are we now? Thursday, this Monday, um, it so about these millions of doses. There was a, a table in there that sort of I haven't even looked at the table and what's in the table because the bit that sort of stuck out to me was this footnote at the bottom, and the source is Tafatuora. And it says adult Pfizer original, and original is in, you know, quotes, was the formulation used from 2021 onwards, replaced in 2023 with the bivalent, which, you know, we already knew, and monovalent vaccines. So there's a partial answer to my question that I have been trying to get for months. Because I have been trying to ask, you know, other than the bivalent, has the adult uh, vaccine changed, composition changed? Well, yes, it has, according to this Herald article, because we no longer have the original. We have this monovalent vaccine. And is that, is that the first acknowledgement of that publicly, that there was a monovalent vaccine? Well, there is some batch number OIAs when people have asked what is the, um, you know, give me a list of all the batch numbers that's come into the country. There is one that I've seen that has, you know, here's the doses of, here's the batch numbers for bivalent. Then there's a couple of lines that says this is the Comrenati 30 microgram monovalent and then all of these lines for Pfizer originals. So they're differentiating a couple of batches somehow. So I've seen that and I've seen this Herald article and those are the only 
things that I've seen. So what we know from this article is that we started off with, in quotes, an original formulation, and then it was replaced with two formulations. Am I reading this correctly? One called a bivalent variation and the other called the monovalent variation. Yeah. So so the original was a monovalent because monovalent means like one, one, one variant. Yes. So the original vaccine had um, the code to sort of provide an immune response to the original wild type um, virus that started circulating in 20, late 19, early 2020. So that was a monovalent. It was just the original monovalent. But now we have another monovalent. Now, so the reason, so people say, well, what do we need a mono, you know, monovalent for? We've got the bivalent. So I, I don't know what they're doing in practice, but when you look at the regulatory material, when the bivalent was approved, given provisional approval, it was only provisionally approved for boosters and for those 16 and over. So if you were 12, 13, 14 or 15 and you wanted to have a booster or you wanted to have your primary course, you couldn't have the bivalent unless you had it off-label. So I'm guessing that the product is for those between 12 and, and 15 and also for people that have suddenly decide for whatever inexplicable reason now they suddenly want to have a Pfizer vaccine when they've never had one before. So why, what do you think is going on? I mean, what do you what what's is there something nefarious? Am I missing something? Because I mean they could just go monovalent. Oh, here's another monovalent, here's a bivalent. Why is this significant? Well, because I'm not getting my questions answered, I can only sort of add bits together and surmise. And my best guess at the minute is that because we regulated for this product with the different buffer do you remember we talked about buffers so which is the solution that the active ingredients are in in the vial so in at the end of 2021 they introduced the possibility of us having in new zealand the this tris buffer product um, and I had sort of assumed that because it was introduced and legislated for in, at the end of 2021, that we sort of had it in 2022 in circulation. But possibly we never did. Possibly this is what this monovalent is that's not the original. It may be the Tris buffer product, but it might be something else. I don't, I don't know. And the tricky thing for them is they have to be, they, these formulations are changing, but at any particular time, what they've agreed to and regulated for, that is to say it's gone through some regulatory approval 
process. It mightn't be a very high hurdle, but it's gone through this process and been ticked off. When they come out with a new formulation, they've got to either put it through that hoop again or make sure that the original hoop covers this new product. And that's, again, a significant point, is it? That it is actually allowed to be used in New Zealand because it's been regulated for. Well, when the when they when this new buffer was introduced, it was done by um, there's what's called a MedSafe product detail. So there was a completely new one done for the TRIS buffer, mm-hmm. and and then when a medicine is given provisional approval, there there is a a, a MedSafe data sheet. So they didn't amend when the TRIS buffer came in. There was a new data sheet. So it was a as a whole new set of documentation. It wasn't yes. kind of that. So when when they with the original product, when they initially it was only for primary courses. So you got two doses. So when they decided it could be used for a booster, they amended the original data sheet. When they changed it so that um, it was available for twelve and over, they amended the. original data sheet but when the tris buffer was introduced because it's a different product there was a whole new set of documentation okay does that answer your question because i wasn't completely sure of the question what i'm striving towards here kathy is to understand the concern my concern yeah, well, the what we should be concerned about. So they've been changing the formulation. Each time they've changed the formulation, they've put it through the regulatory provisional process and come out with a new data set. They've, in the Herald, they've told the Herald, oh, yes, we had the original, then we had a bivalent and monovalent. So we know that there are three types, Right that were running. I'm saying, as I understand it, there was a data sheet for each one and an approval for each one, provisional. There's an interesting issue about 12-year-olds because the regulation for some of these didn't go down to, what, 12, 13-year-olds. Why should I be concerned? What are we driving towards? Well, um, a couple of things, I guess. And, I mean, the big question is, why did it change? Like, you, so we've sort of, when people say, oh, I don't want to have this vaccine because it's still in clinical trials or it's still an experiment, they're told, oh, it's not. You know, it's being given to millions of people worldwide. And, you know, that's that's the answer that's given by a lot of officials. And I always think, well, that's not the reassurance that you are obviously intending it to be because it is still uh, in, in clinical trials and we're just marketing it in parallel with the trial. And actually the trial has results of the trial have become less relevant because of this um, sort of 
We now know that there was a process one for manufacturing in for this vaccines that were in the trial and a different process, manufacturing process used in when they went to market with it. But let's just park that. So so the issue sort of is if they're changing it, then the why trials. are they changing it? Yeah. And it, and it, and it's sort of, you know, it makes it look more like a trial and an experiment. I and, get it. I get it. I get it. They, I get if, it. They, if they are changing it, just tell us why it was changed and be open and be transparent. This the secrecy is suspicious and it makes people feel uneasy. Because here are the reasons you, you could change it. One reason could be, hey, we've improved the process for manufacture. Or, hey, if we do it this way, we get a better vaccine. Or, the virus is mutating, therefore we change the formulation. Hmm. Or, hell, we were getting all these adverse effects. <laughs> I wonder if we change it, we'll get a better result. It's a good summation. Much better. All of those, all those are possibilities. Yeah, and all those are vital to know. I get it now because what you're saying is there has to be a reason why you changed the formulation, and we should be able to find out, given that you were jabbing everyone in the arm with it, mm. and requiring them to be jabbed in the arm. Also, your promise that don't worry, it's been used millions of times over around the world. You say, no, that was the first <laughs> dose. Now you're getting a different dose. You're exp that, is, that is the definition of an experiment. Mm. You're, changing, you're changing the formulation on us. I get it now. That is actually extremely scary. And just going back to this process one, process two, you've you've heard about that? I have, but yeah. maybe explain it for listeners because this I, too is shocking. I, I don't, well, we can maybe do it together because I don't know a lot about it because I sort of sit down in the New Zealand specific detail. But in, at a high level, which is all I sort of understand, is that there were there was a manufacturing process for the doses that were used in the clinical trial and the clinical trial sort of got to its phase 3 and they applied for emergency use authorization to actually use it on the public worldwide and were given that emergency use authorization and as a consequence, you know, that gave our authorities, I guess, some confidence that they could provisionally approve it and bring it into New Zealand. So when they when they started scaling up production for actually marketing this thing, selling it to give to people outside of the clinical trial, a different manufacturing process was used. And that's only become known in recent months. Yes. And that's sort of tied up with this... DNA contamination and grown in E. coli, stuff that I sort of don't know an awful lot about. So you may be able to add to No, that. well, 
uh, yeah, I, well, that, I know it like you know it, that there was a process one tested for that. Oh, it looks okay. Funny enough, when you go back and experts look at the clinical trials, they say, hang on, this looks scary. Hmm. So even those clinical trials, yeah, people tell me that are experts are saying, actually, if you did this clinical trial, you wouldn't approve it. Yeah, well, this, this non-expert that you're talking to now thinks that that, you could see that right from the get-go yeah. in 2020 and the material they submitted to the FDA. Like you'll remember that there were those 3,000 people that showed COVID symptoms yes. that weren't tested for COVID, so they kept yes. them out of their um, efficacy calculations. Yeah. And then the jab that people were getting in their arm was made by a different manufacturing process so the clinical trial then is undermined because mm. the pro the process changed and therefore you can suspect that the product may have changed. And now they're discovering, and again, I'm relying on experts telling me there's these contaminations and you're thinking, oh, my God. And then they start saying, oh, yeah, there's DNA in there. Oh my God, who knows what's going on now? We, we are totally confused. And here you are in New Zealand. They've changed the formulation in a significant way because I think you said the word base, the base, is it? What is it that the substrate, the, the buffer? The buffer. So, this is the buffer that allows it to travel through your bloodstream to enter the cells. Is that correct? Or just the solution that it's being carried in? Yeah. Pass. I mean, it's Pass. just the solution that it's that so, it in. So they're changing the buffer and don't tell anyone. Well, they, they've done all the – they've dotted all their regulatory I's and crossed all their regulatory T's, but the, the problem that I've got is it was done so quietly when – you know, somebody held their tongue the wrong way and it was communicated for it at one point. So we had all these communications and every day we were told these people have got, you know, COVID or died of COVID and they're this ethnicity and they're this age and they're this gender and um, stuff that actually to the average person was not very relevant. Mm. And But we were getting fed all this sort of minutiae to sort of clog up the communication airways. Meanwhile, all of this, which is fairly significant, was just quietly being done in the background. And you want to know which, just so I get this right, which batch numbers, so if you have a batch number, that is an amount of vaccines, doses, that were made at the one time. Yeah. And they have a number, like when you're in manufacturing, mm. um, we, 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 we made the Tesla at this plant in this year, and that's that batch. And then we did some changes, and here's the next batch. And um, you might be bottling milk, and you have a batch number, right? So they're making these complicated uh, manufacturing process at huge scale, making literally um, hundreds of millions of vaccines doses. And they all have a batch number. 
on where they were made and what day they were made and all the detail about that, as you'd expect in any manufacturing process. And you've asked the ministry, oh, I see there are different formulations of the vaccine. Could you tell me which formulation had which batch numbers, right? Which should be a two-minute job. Yeah. And you've been weeks and weeks and weeks and they're unable to answer that. Mm. And if they can't readily put their fingers on that data, you have to worry about their process of follow-up, checking, whatever, because they should be knowing this. Because what's the point of a batch number if you don't actually have a record of it? That's right. If they do readily have it to hand, so they don't have it readily to hand, it's terrifying because there's no, there's no quality control or assessment. If they do readily have it to hand, it should be immediately available because it's no big deal, right? Yeah. The original one with these batch numbers the subsequent monovalent with these batch numbers and the subsequent bivalent with these batch numbers. End of story. Well, when I, at one point, even though I don't do a lot of work with batch numbers, at one point in, in sort of frustration, I thought, well, I'm going to do a search and, and gather together all of the OIAs I can find that have batch numbers in them because lots of people have asked, you know, tell me about the batch numbers that have come into the country. So one of them identifies these two batch numbers, FY4526 and HC8237, that are called, what do they call them? Mono, mono, COVID adult Pfizer 30 microgram monovalent. And then all of the others, apart from the bivalent, are called COVID adult Pfizer original. So... I figured that part out for myself. That they do have these different formulations. They yeah. do have them correlated with batch numbers, but they won't give you the totality of it. No, because I've asked sort of additional questions. I've asked, you know, at what date did they first arrive in the country and what date were they first distributed for administration? Hmm. None of that's hard. Right? No. So why, why would they be worried? Let's get into the surmising. Why would they be worried to give that to you? Well, one reason I can think of is that people might be cross to know that they weren't getting the same as their neighbour who went to another vaccination mm. centre um, because they all thought they were getting the same thing. And um, also because it makes it look more like an experiment and they've been trying to tell us that it's not. Wouldn't it be alarming if the doses that were dumped 
were the originals. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Because you're assuming in a reading of a quick reading of that Herald article that <clears throat> we bought 18 million and got 6 million too many. Did you say 18? You did, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, good. Is that the right number? I'm, a bit, I'm a bit deaf today. I was hoping you didn't okay. say 18 because that wouldn't be right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 18 million and we dumped six. It could be, oh, I'm having a terrible thought here, Kathy. You do this to me. That's why I love you so much. It could be, oh, my God, that they bought 12 million. Oh, we got just the right amount. Then a new dose came out, so they bought six million of that new dose and dumped six million of the original. Yeah, but the bit that's I'm finding a bit unusual at the minute is that the Tris buffer was was legislated for at the end of 2021. Now, this Herald article is telling me that they have only been used in New Zealand in 2023. So why the long time frame? We, we were just trying to use up all of our old stock first, you know, so this is the these are all the reasons for my questions. I want to understand what's happened. Yes. As does, you know, anybody else who's kind of given this some thought. Yes. And of course, if you get the batch numbers, a question would be which ones were the ones dumped? Because mm. they're not all the same. Well, all OAAs that come back certainly raise more questions than they answer in my experience. So, um, you know. The difficulty too is that we have a little trust issue, don't we? Because in the normal course of events, when you're dealing with officials and experts and all the rest of it, you sort of assume they're doing their best and that cock-ups happen and paperwork gets lost and, you know, they're human, right? And they're human in these vast organisations and people are coming and going. But all around this COVID, we have developed a deep sense of unease that you're being fed a story to get you to do something that you otherwise wouldn't do. So mm. this constant safe and effective, the healed running a campaign, we've got this target, a vaxathon, and all the rest of it. And everything then is couched to get you to this particular behavior, i.e. take the jab. And that taking the jab came what's important. And anything that might get in the way of taking the jab, like, oh, by the way, this is a slightly different formulation, not to worry, 
you know, it's all good. You, they don't want to explain that because it would get in the way of what they're trying to get you to do. And then you suddenly think, these aren't officials serving me. These are officials manipulating and using me. And I develop a trust issue. And so now what happens? When you tell me, oh, I just read that article, Six Million Wasted, Silly Fools, Ordered Too Much. Then I find out that there were different vaccines, right? And then they're not telling you the batch numbers. And then I just go into hyperdrive because I'm now scared for what they've done, isn't it? Because I don't trust them. Mm. Mm. Am I correct? Well, it's it certainly doesn't inspire trust. This, this, you know, we 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 market ourselves in New Zealand as a as a trustworthy society and a transparent and open society. Mm. Oh, that's not what we're seeing at the moment around this issue. Absolutely not. Quite the reverse. Well, I'm going to take it upon myself to write to, I'm going to drop them an email. Oh, it's my dear friend, Mr. Jamie Morton, who's written this article, right? I'm afraid he will think I'm a terrible conspiracy theorist and a nut job because I don't go to bed every night and quake in, in my pyjamas that tomorrow that earth might end because of climate change so i've got form for him as being a conspiracy theorist but i might drop him a line and say well it's very interesting here mr morton because you've identified that there are different variations on these vaccines which were the six million that were dumped because that's an obvious question for a journalist to ask yep oh wow I will do that, and I'll let you know. Goodness knows, I'll copy you on a list. What else is troubling you about the data? Anything else, or you're still yeah. just beavering away um, on these? I mean, that was numbers. meant to be the quick and easy one before I launched into my OIAs around and the responses around the adverse events. Um, so you up to diving into that now? I'm just sitting here agog. Well, you know how we used to have safety reports around these COVID vaccines and they stopped yes. the last one published December 2022? Yes. Well, I thought to myself in August, there's been a lot of people protesting that they're not publishing them anymore. And I thought, well, I'll just ask a set of OIA questions that will glean the important pieces that used to be on those reports, because a lot of it, again, was just stuff that wasn't entirely relevant and to the average person. You know, it's average, it's relevant on a societal level, like ethnicity of reports and things like that. But it, really, the guts of it is 
how many total reports have there been, how many have been reports of death, and how many have been serious. Mm -hmm. And MedSafe has some conditions that have to be satisfied for it you know there's they don't they don't get to sort of use complete judgment they have to about what's a serious report and what's non-serious they have a set of criteria and and then they also used to raise safety signals on these reports you know if there'd been a safety signal that needed to be investigated so a number of reports had come in for um, myocarditis, for example. So that was a safety signal that was raised. So I asked for this, uh, I think it was around the end of August. And it's been going backwards and forwards since then. Now, where do I even start? So, so they, so in answer to my question, what has been the total number of reports? they directed me to a line listing that had been placed in a place on the MedSafe website where it didn't used to be reported before and had been put there the day before I asked my request <laughs> coincidentally. And so when I opened that up. The day um, before or the day after? The day before. So they even played with the numbers. So when when so no so what just to explain what a line listing was the the previous safety reports had sort of a summary page, and that told you the number of deaths that have been reported. It told you um, how many reports of myocarditis had been. It told you how many serious reports. A whole lot of things. And at the very bottom of the summary page, you could click on a, a link that took you to an Excel file, which is the line listing. So it had oh, yes. all of the reports in a great big yep. long sort yep. of line with their coded MEDRA codes um, symptoms. So this new report that I was directed to um, after I asked the question for some updated um, material was not a summary page. It was just a line listing. Um, but in the explanation, it said it doesn't include deaths where death is the only reported reaction. So if somebody had, um, you know, been absolutely fine and then just suddenly died, their only reported reaction was death. Yes. So they don't, they had, they didn't include those. They didn't include any bivalent reports. And because it was just a great big long Excel file, I had no way of determining what was serious and what wasn't. So it in no way answered my question. <laughs> so, so I went back and I pointed that out. And they basically just reiterated the same thing again and said something, oh, they said this, MedSafe stands by its position and has nothing further to add. <laughs> so, so I came to a bit of a dead end there, but 
what I what I did then ask them is what's the rationale um for not including reports uh what not including reports where death was the only reported reaction and <laughs> so there's there's four criteria for a to satisfy to be a valid report and one let me see if i can remember them you have to have reported a, a a reaction one at least one reaction the reporter has to have given some contact details there has to be at least one identifying characteristic for the consumer or the patient that has had the reaction and contactable at least one reaction one identifying characteristic, and there's one other which is slipping my mind at the minute. Um, sorry, can't think, but one other. Anyway, so when I asked them, what's the rationale for not including reports where death is the only reported reaction, <laughs> they've said since death is an outcome, but not a reaction, <laughs> these are considered invalid, report, invalid reports. This is, this is a clown world. So they've so, just semantics. They've decided death is an outcome. So I go in and I get a vaccine and I drop dead and they say, ah. Oh. <laughs> no reaction there, just an outcome. Yeah, but they are, they, they're not including them in the line listing. And, um, but they are, they have told, because I've asked them, I've pushed them to answer these summary reports, that summary sheets that we used to get. I said, well, are those deaths included in those totals where you say total death on the, the safety report summary page, they'll say X number of deaths. And I think we were up to, were we up to about 184 or something? Had been yes. reported. Yes. So I said, well, okay, they might not be included in the line listing, those reports, but are they included in the totals? And they've said, yes, they are due to unprecedented unprecedented interest um, with this product. Well, why is there unprecedented interest? It's because of all this secrecy and, mm. and the fact that it is a novel product, yet we're not being communicated with properly. Um, so, you know, it almost sounded a wee bit exasperated when they said due to unprecedented interest. And I imagine they are getting exasperated with the number of people that are asking them questions. It must be extremely burdensome. But if they just answered them, it wouldn't yeah, be. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, these were weekly. Were they weekly reports or monthly reports? They, start, they started out weekly and then they sort of progressed over months to – fortnightly and then monthly and then we didn't get some for three months and then they stopped altogether. And is it my understanding or was this an overseas thing in the UK where they said, oh, we're no longer publishing them because the information's being misunderstood? 
Well, what what they sort of said when they've been queried about why they stopped is they said that um, because the number of vaccinations had slowed, which it had by December of 22, it definitely had, um, then, because by then it was completely voluntary, right? Well, no, that's not quite right. There was still, you know, tertiary students that were going on placement to in the healthcare field that were being coerced and probably and still healthcare workers being coerced. But apart from that unfortunate circumstance, the the for the general public, there were no vaccine passes, there were no workplace mandates. So outside of healthcare the coercion had fallen away and so the demand had fallen away. Mm-hmm. Um, people who were all on board to have, you know, two or three and were still getting COVID multiple times probably, you know, were thinking what's the point. So anyway, the demand had fallen away, so the adverse event reporting had fallen away, they said. And so then I said to them, well, that may well be true. However, there's still a small matter of a number of reports that were in a backlog that were never reported from the time where the vaccine was in high demand. And I know that because of this OIA that was um, the response that came out in May of 2023, I think it was, it may have been April, where there was a little table um, and the definition of a serious report is hospital, you know, death, hospitalised, um, a life-threatening, permanent disability, um, and so a number of different categories. So this table had all of these things, um, you know, in it. And if you added them all up, these all came to 13,851. Now, I don't know if you can add them all up because some of the categories may be a subset of some of the other more serious categories. Mm -hmm. But even if you can't add them all up, one of the numbers was 11,000 and something. So at the very least, there was 11,000 serious adverse event reports submitted by um, April, May of 2023, yet there'd only been 3,688 reported on and at the end of in December of 2022. Mm. So if the reports of the vaccinations and their subsequent adverse event reports had slowed to a trickle, they still need to address the outstanding that has... Um, that's connected with this backlog. And I've had a rather unsatisfactory answer. Just before we go there, Kathy, because I'm still mulling over this OIA, where you go in and you basically say, look, you used to publish all this stuff. You no longer do, but obviously you're still collecting the data. Here's an OIA with half a dozen high-level characteristics, please can you send that to me? And they do give you the information, but don't include deaths. 
Well, they give me the, well, they don't, they, they, they gave me this big long file so I could sort of calculate from that file that there were six, there had been sort of 64,000 something and some, I can't remember the exact number, back in December of 2022, individual unique reports. And that had gone up to 65,000 and something when I calculated how many unique reports were in this big long Excel file. But I knew it because they told me it didn't include bivalent. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it didn't include reports. We'd, it, it, so let me just clear something up. It didn't include reports where death was the only reported yes. reaction. Yes. So somebody who said, look, you know, I've got chest pain, then I was diagnosed with myocarditis, and then they died. They would still be included in the line. But no, no, you would see their assessment number, their decade of life, their um, sex, and you would see that they had chest pain and myocarditis, but you would see no reference to death because that is removed supposedly and when i've asked them why did, what's the rationale for removing any reference to death they say for privacy so the report is there but you can't identify that that person has died that doesn't make sense either does it no no doesn't they're avoiding the headline yeah yeah because the deaths would be a headline and they might be arguing oh well it's not necessarily the vaccine they could have just died from something else and it's that headline they want to avoid so they're sitting on the information and then they call if it's only death they say well that's just an outcome not an adverse reaction so we don't not giving you that through semantics this has all the hallmarks that you'd expect of a government department disguising a budget overrun obfuscation redefinition of terms delay 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 but this is a government department obfuscating and delaying and putting up absurd propositions over a government-mandated medicine that has had adverse events that involve potentially getting extremely sick and dying, and they're bullshitting you and bullshitting us over a shocking outcome. They're probably thinking that we're too stupid to handle the information because they're saying, look, this doesn't prove that it was a vaccine. And we say, yeah, we get that. Mm. But we're big enough and bright enough to understand that. And you're going to deny us, the public of New Zealand, you're denying us this critical information. It's the most extraordinary, shocking thing that a government department could ever do. It's like there was a Pike River explosion, but we're not going to tell you whether there are any men down there or not. Yeah. Well, this this I'm particularly interested in this backlog that hasn't been reported. Yes. Yes. Because when you go through the minutes 
of um, the Independent Safety Monitoring Board and there's also another OIA that sort of talks about some system problems that they've had along the way. And I think what's happened is sort of in there. So so if we go back to sort of like May and June of, of 2021, then the Independent Safety Monitoring Board is being told that, um, you know, we are seeing high rates of adverse event reporting in New Zealand, um, but we've got robust reporting systems, so that's probably why. And and they're saying, well, but the serious adverse events are low. Um, so, and then in July, um, a gentleman called Tim Hanlon attends the meeting, and he's from an area of the Ministry of Health called Post-Event Monitoring, and he alerts them to the fact that their auto-triage of their system isn't working. And what the auto-triage is supposed to do is um, it uses sort of certain rules to sort serious adverse events um, that go for medical assessment by Michael Tatley, I think, who's the head of CALM, from the non-serious ones that get no further action. Mm -hmm. So they, in, in July of 2021, they find out that their auto triage isn't working. So they've been telling themselves, well, we've got lots of adverse event reports, but they're not ser they're not serious. They're they're non-serious. But then they find out that their automated <laughs> triaging system didn't work. Now they're still talking about auto triage problems um, in some memos and emails released under OIA in September of 2021. Um, and <laughs> at the same time, so 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 the, instead of having auto triage, they've got a team doing it manually. And they say we've we've raised a, a ticket to fix it but it might not be worth pursuing and we need to make a decision if we proceed with auto triage any further. And at the same time, they've discovered that they've got a problem when a report is submitted to CALM, if it's incomplete or if there's an error, it doesn't tell the person who's inputting the data that there's a problem. It lets them submit it. Now, that then got, doesn't go push through to COVID calm for them to have a look at. It goes into an error log. And around September of 2021, they discover that they haven't been getting the error logs. They're supposed to be alerts, and there were no alerts. So. So again, they put a manual process in place, but due to resourcing, they discuss the option of accepting the risk of these miss missing reports. So what does that mean? Does it mean that they will just not deal with them? So this is why it's really, really important that they tell us, you know, because they were having all of these problems 
So we need to know how many total reports have there been, how many have been serious, and how many people have died. Because when they're they're talking about these incorrect or incomplete reports, they say these include a number of serious, e.g. death reports, and it's unclear how many there are. Wouldn't this be just drop everything and fix this? A manual process was put in place, but due to resourcing, the option of accepting the risk of these missing reports was raised. And to be fair to these people in CALM, I mean, all of the money that was used in the COVID era on communications and and all sorts of Kentucky Fried Chicken and whatever you could get, it all seemed to be focused on getting those needles into arms. I mean, I've not asked the question, but I've never seen anybody say that CALM was resourced to cope with the extraordinary number of Mm. um, increase in volume that they had. So they used to get about 5,000 reports per annum for all medicines. Now, what we have been told is taking deaths out of the equation and taking the bivalent out of the equation, they had had by August of 2023. So what's that? 2021, 20, so two and a half years that had 65,000 reports for one product alone. And their system can't handle it. And no one in the ministry or in politics cares because they're busily buying jabs and getting people to take them. And CALM's just working away as though it's getting 5,000 for all medicines and it's been been overwhelmed. Mm. And now... They don't want to release the information because on the face of it, it looks bad. There might be an explanation, but on the face of it, this looks really, really bad. Well, I started to sort of, you know, I mean, they do need to be called to account, but I I started to feel a little bit almost sorry for them in a, in a way. And I, so one of my questions um, was, you know, I do wonder whether CALM, now moved to within MedSafe, I understand, has been adequate, because I've heard that they've kind of moved it up from out of Otago University into Wellington. Um, has I do wonder whether it's been adequately resourced to manage 240,000 line entries because even though there's 64,000 reports, even though every report will have, you know, multiple symptoms or most will, um, I understand there's been an introduction of new IT systems too within this tumultuous time. Are you able to provide me with the org structure of CALM as it was and the org structure of whatever replacement structure now sits within MedSafe, if that is correct? 
And they took a very um, long time to detail, give me a detailed answer to that, which is calm continues to exist independently of MedSafe. <laughs> That's the totality of their answer. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, Cappy. Oh, my goodness. This is the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. Um, um, so, can you handle more? Well, I'm still, I'm still going. So, but it is gobsmacking, and I mean, it, it takes a little while for it to sink in. To be frank. Like, I'm still catching up on the first bombshell you dropped, and there's been a big one since, and now you're telling me there's a bit more. Yeah, well... But let's do it, because you got us... You're a great tease. Oh, my goodness. Please. Me, I want to see if I... Because I, I actually don't know who I am or what my name is at the moment either. Um, so with regards to the... Sim, um, the IT systems. Now I've got it here in my in my notes somewhere, and I don't want to have to talk off the top of my head on this piece. Um, ah, here we are. So, so in in answering my questions, like at some point they've they've also seems to have changed. They've changed the format. And that this assessment number started to be used that was or this number that was different to the ref to the like the number that used to be assigned to a report before. Like it used to be AEFIA and then six digits. And they just sort of changed to this number that just started with 151, blah, blah, blah. So I asked a couple of questions around the changes and then, and then they 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 used to have these codes, you know, it might say gate disturbance and then it would have a six-digit code. And, and what I got back was um, an answer that says, well, we're not doing this anymore because that used to be a feature of the database we used at that time. And and then something else, uh, when I said, well, why has this changed? They said, well, we don't use that in this database, but we're going to use it in our new database. It hasn't gone live yet. So I got really confused. And I said, so the words at that time infers that the old database isn't used any longer. The new database isn't live yet. So what database are you using? And I got another extensive, well-prepared answer. Took All them a while, I bet. into CALM are held in a secure database. I interrupted you and talked over you when you were saying that. What was your answer? All reports sent to CALM are held in a secure database. 
So so what they've told me all over the place in these OIAs is, well, we're not using our old database, but our new database hasn't gone live. So my question was, well, where's the data being stored then? And they said, in a secure database. But what database? They're not using their old one. They haven't got their new one gone live. So where is it all? A thinking human being sitting in an office cubicle has had a meeting and prepared that answer. And that answer would have been checked off before being sent out. And it's incoherent. These people have university degrees and aren't stupid. Um, it's quite possible, because I know a little bit about how this works, that hours and hours and hours and up to two dozen people were involved in preparing that answer. These are people who have been answering OIAs. I had a lovely lady when I was a minister who used to help with question time in Parliament. And her job was to prepare possible questions. And I regarded myself as very excellent at this. And she prepared these possible questions that I could get asked. And they were devastating. Like, so good. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, no one's clever enough to ask these questions so well. Where did you learn this? And she said, oh, I started back when Roger Douglas was a minister. I said, oh, what, like in 1984? And she said, no, 1972. <laughs> <laughs> so there are people in these organizations who know what they're doing. And they have repeatedly and totally failed to answer your questions about the health and safety and deaths of Kiwis to government policy. These adverse events were beginning to be a thing that people were making a meal of. They get evaporated. When you ask for the data, takes a while. They exclude deaths because that's not an adverse event, that's an outcome. Then they explain that there's all this data on serious adverse events that had been going to an error file and they're busily running through trying to manually do the database. They transfer the crowd that are managing this database from Dunedin to Wellington and you say, Cole, what's the organizational structure? Or and now, and what was the answer on that one? 
Harm continues to exist independently of MedSafe. <laughs> and then you say, I noticed that you've got rid of your old database and you've got a new database, but it's not yet live. So where is all the data on adverse events being held? And the answer is in a secure database. That could mean anything, right? Could mean Joe Biden's garage. <laughs> yeah. For people that follow American politics, you do, so you laughed. Um, these people can't be trusted. Well, so it, so then so this line listing that was posted in August on August twenty eighth that didn't include any reports where death was the only reported reaction, um, and it doesn't include the bivalent. I did a bit of had a bit of a look at that, and I noticed that. There were net 355 more reports in that one than there was in the December 22 one that I'll call Report 46 because that's its name. And But there were reports from Report 46. So there'd actually been 400 and something new reports, but they'd taken out 127 reports that were in Report 46. So they'd added 480, taken out 127 from the Report 46, and they weren't, so they didn't take them out of Report 46, but they weren't in this August 2023 line listing. So there were more reports net. So my first question is, why were these 127 uh, not included that were included before? Most of them, all but about seven, were from the very early days of the vaccine program, March, April, May 2021. So I wanted to find out were they duplicates, had there been an update made, and had the update been given an assessment number instead of referring to the original assessment number so that they merged it into the new number and got rid of the old numbers? Is that what happened? <laughs> And, and they've sort of said to me that um, usually an older number will be kept, which would make sense, right? The first mm -hmm. number should be kept if, if that happened. But then I also asked the question, what happens if an update is made to an existing report and in the update death is the only reported reaction? Is that report then removed from the line listing? So the answer to that question was where further information is provided, the case is updated and it depends um, on what the information is. 
as to whether a report is included in the line listing or not. <laughs> so oh. I guess I'm inferring from that that because they can't they can't delete a report. They can only make it in, invalid. And the criteria for valid reports I've found one patient identifier, what the medicine is, so the reaction, and the reporter details. So so what could make a valid um a valid report invalid. It either has the information or it doesn't. Yeah, so that's what I said to them. So they're all early reports. So presumably they were valid because mm -hmm. if you hadn't sort of established after, you know, between... March, April, May of 2021 and December of 2022 that you didn't have all the information, well, you know, that wouldn't be very timely. So I still don't really know why that, why those 127 were not included, um, but I'd like to know because the information, the picture that I am building means I'd really like to know. Because particularly if with this, if death is the only reported reaction, um, we don't include it. So I want to know if if these people have have had a reaction and that reaction has been death in the update. What happens to their initial report? Does it go? Now the second strange thing was even though there were three hundred and fifty five more reports on a net basis in this August 2023 line listing. There were 13,000 less lines. So more reports, but less lines. So I've got some data that tells me what lines were taken out. And I sort of prepared a little file with about 20 or 30 of them just randomly. You know, it was this in Report 46, and now it's this. And I passed it under the nose of a clinician, and I said, can you just sort of have a look at this for me and tell me, you know, would you, would you do this with normal sort of housekeeping if you were just sort of tidying up your file and trying to make it not get too large, but still keeping its value as a pharmacovigilance tool. You know, i.e. this person reported all of these reactions, but they have a diagnosis of a condition. And so for them, in Report 46, they had about 16 different symptoms listed. And, and they also had their condition included in there. And in the August 23 listing, they only had their condition. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, is that reasonable? Because can you infer all these symptoms if you know that they've got this condition? Is that a reasonable thing to do? And 
this clinician that I asked sort of scanned down and said, yep, I suppose you could argue that that's a reasonable kind of data management. Yep, that one's, you could say, that one's not, that one's not reasonable if you want to have a file that is a pharmacovigilance tool that's going to help you understand what might be going on with this medicine. So with the sort of 20 or 30 that I had for the clinician to spot check, they definitely didn't say, yes, no, that all looks to me like a reasonable thing to do. It was, I definitely got mixed feedback. So to summarise where we're at, We have this adverse adverse event reporting system. We had a massive jump in numbers and it was fixing up some backlog. That hasn't been explained. We had a weekly and then a monthly reporting system. Now we have nothing. When you ask for the data, they exclude, they obfuscate, obfuscate, obfuscate. Then you send they just a raw file with deaths excluded. And then you notice that they have removed some symptoms for conditions, some of which could arguably be justified, but lots couldn't clinically. We have an organization that's changed its organization, but when asked, they can't provide an organizational chart other than to say it's independent. We've had a medicine, so-called vaccine, that's been changed, but they can't tell us which bat numbers match to which variant of the vaccine. 18 million vaccines were bought and 6 million have been dumped. We don't know which variety of the vaccine was dumped. And every time a member of the public, oh, they've changed their database because they're... <laughs> Serious adverse events were being sent to an error file and not being picked up. Those were the ones that were supposed to be looked at. And so they were going through manually and trying to work out what was a serious effect because the algorithm's computer program had fallen over. So they're clearly hopeless at maintaining a database. They've changed their database because they had an old one and not fit for purpose. So they built a new one, but it's not yet live. And so you say, well, all these adverse events and people, what database are they on? Are oh, they in a secure database? They can't answer it. You could not present to us, Kathy, a worst example of total incompetence if you were 
oh, I don't know, keeping an eye on paper clips at the Ministry of Business and Information. But this is people's lives. And no one cares. There's 120 MPs. There's all these journalists. No one's picking up on it. Well, we're at a very interesting point. You know, I apologise for using the term interesting because I, I absolutely, you know, that the the, oh, the tragedy of all of this for so many people weighs heavily on me. Um, so I, I don't think of it academic and interesting. Um, so I apologise for using that word. But because we've had, we are in the midst of a change of government, I mean, perhaps you can talk us through what sort of happens with regards to official briefings and all of those sorts of things at this time? Yes, I can. So in many ways, it's a new broom. Every minister has changed. The prime minister has changed. And the power balance in Parliament has been totally reversed. Those who are in power are no longer in power, and a new group come in. The bureaucracy writes a briefing for the incoming minister. I have a funny feeling they prepare too, depending on who will win the election, right? But they're prepared, and when you become a minister, this is what you get handed to and you get a briefing. And it's an opportunity for the bureaucracy to clear the decks and own up and say, oh, we had a lot of this stuff going on, but, you know, previous minister. And they can also push their agenda, we recommend you do this, that, and the other thing, and they frame it in a way that National would like rather than Labour would like, but it's the same old stuff, they just frame it differently. And the minister will have his or her staff that are on their side who'll be going through the stuff and say, here's something that they've slipped in here, minister, that doesn't meet the smell test because they've sort of waved their hand over it. But if caught, they can point to it. Oh, yeah, we told you that six months ago in your briefing. So what I would do is write a letter to the minister, the new minister, and say, just you might want to know what's going on in your department. Now, the minister mightn't read it very closely, but his or her staff will, and they're on red alert then, because everything's about minimising a risk. And they have an opportunity to say, this isn't our problem, this was the previous minister's problem, and root it out and expose it. That's what they'd want to do. So I think it's a huge opportunity for you and for us and for New Zealand. Um, you mightn't be able to readily access that briefing to the minister. Sometimes they 
release them proactively. Sometimes they don't. Um, they've got great ways of briefing a minister without making it official. They can do it in person, talking, and they can even put post notes on it and rip them off and <laughs> destroy them, all sorts of stuff to avoid it. They're good at avoiding the official information at requests. Um, that's what happens. A new minister, just talking it through, will want to expose this so it doesn't become their problem and their cover-up. Because that's what it is, right? Well, see, the, the renewal of the provisional consent was interesting because Sue Gray did a Facebook Live. And I, it was, I think, the 27th of October. Was that a Friday? So the Friday sort of before. Yes. Yeah. So so the provisional consents for all of these products, the whole lot, you know, the bivalent, the original, <laughs> the Tris buffer product, the pediatric vaccine and the infant vaccine, all were renewed until the 3rd of November 2023. So there was this very weird Gazette notice, which I haven't really got to the bottom of what its intent was, on the 27th of October, um, renewing the provisional consent to the 3rd of November 2023. But that's when it was renewed to in the Gazette notice that was made on the 28th of October. October 2021. So the conditions must have changed or the manufacturing locations that were permissible must have changed. Something must have changed because the date that the approval was extended out to was not changed. And so when that happened, I got quite excited because I thought this is Chris James because he's the one that has to renew the provisional consent saying, no, I won't do it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> because we're in a period where the Labour government's outgoing and the new government's coming in. And the 3rd of November was the day we were going to understand about the specials. So we were going to have a better idea of who our new government would be on the 3rd mm. of November. So it's interesting that those dates all lined up. Mm. Well... But, we had... but oh. so I thought, you know, good on him, great, <laughs> because he wouldn't want to be left holding the baby any more than he already is when the new government comes in and the rest of them have scarpered and the new government can say, well, you renewed this for two years before we came in. So I, I got quite excited. But on the 2nd of November, late at night, it was renewed for a further two years. So there was another Gazette notice a week after the other one. So it has been renewed now. Okay, well, let's put a pause to your truth bombs. I feel flabbergasted by this, Kathy. I have got well used to 
government departments covering up and disguising and obfuscating. But over typical cock-ups, you know what I mean? Oh, we had a budget blowout or we were doing this project and it didn't quite work and something went wrong. I'm well used to that. Yes, Minister, to me, is a documentary, the TV comedy, and how a minister gets <clears throat> manipulated into a bad position by the bureaucracy, who are all-powerful. But this scale of incompetence and obfuscation to do with death and illness is shattering. And the total lack of accountability back onto that reporting system and therefore back through on all the bureaucracy, all the politicians, and all the media is words fail me. And bath for you and a few other brave souls pulling into this stuff, they would have completely got away with it. You and I aren't saying at this stage, oh, this is a crime, this is terrible. We're just saying this is suspicious. This is obfuscation. This is incompetence. This is all these things. And it needs investigation. And there's a fine opportunity to do it now because we have a new minister shortly and a new government. This stuff needs to be swept up and cleaned up, not swept out. And they're actually getting away with it. So far, right? Bar for you. We've been talking to Kathy Jameson. She's a lot of fun, actually. I love her. But she presents a very sobering, very dark, and truly shocking analysis. And it's not her interpretation that we're relying on to reach that conclusion. That's the key thing. We're relying exactly on the words of the Ministry of Health and its officials and her answers to her. That's what's damning. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.